Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Brian Chingono, partner and director of quantitative research at Verdide Advisors, an asset management firm that utilizes quantitative models and machine learning to select securities. We start the discussion around the firm's research on the drivers of private equity returns over time, and we talk about how small cap levered value stocks in the public markets can seek to replicate private equity-like performance. We discuss the research paper Brian co-authored on this topic, and the conversation bleeds into many other areas, including the firm's use of machine learning in its investment process, predicting changes in bond ratings quantitatively, and the historical evidence that shows some of the best times to invest in value stocks. This was a good discussion with Brian, and it highlights the original thinking, research, and evidence-based approach being used at Verdot. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Brian Chingono. All right, Brian, thank you for joining us today. Hello. Thank you for having me. That's such an honor. I really appreciate it. We were talking before we started recording. It's a bit different environment than when we were at the Harvard Club a few years ago, <laughs> having tea and talking and networking. Now it's uh, via, you know, Zoom or this type of stuff. Yeah, exactly. In our, in our, in our virtual world, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so but we're excited to uh, talk to you about some stuff today. So, um, you know, when Jack and I, usually what we do is we kind of usually get right to the meat of the topics that we want to talk to our guests about. But I think with you, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And maybe it's a little bit more of the traditional way uh, when guests come on podcasts, but I thought it would be really cool and neat for us to hear the story of Verdad and how you and your partner, Dan Rasmussen, first met and the development of the investment strategy kind of from the very beginning, I guess. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of like the story because it was two guys that knew each other that kind of went maybe in somewhat different directions, but then sort of came back together. Um, you know, and now you guys are building something really great with the investment strategies at Verdad. So I thought maybe to start, you could kind of share, share that history with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. So, um, Dan, uh, who's the founder of our firm, uh, and I met in college, uh, initially, um, at Harvard. And then after we graduated, uh, from college, uh, Dan went into uh, private equity uh, at Bank Capital, um, and I was working in uh, on the private equity fund investment side um, at, uh, at at Credit Suisse. Um, and the short story was um, is that Dan did a, a, a big study at, at Bank Capital on uh, the, the private equity market, where the, the main takeaways were that uh, the vast majority of the profits in the private equity industry. Uh, were generated from companies that traded at less than seven times EBITDA, right? And to give you a sense, uh, for the data set that they built at that time, um, about 25% of the companies uh, were trading, had, had traded below seven times EBITDA, but that generated um, uh, more than half of, of, the, of the industry uh, profits. Um, so the big takeaway was that valuation is, is, is really, really important uh, in, in private equity. Um, and, and in my experience, um, um, on the fund uh, allocator side for, for private equity, uh, um, 
we found something similar, uh, although in less uh, detail than that, 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 that Dan's study, which looked at individual deals. Uh, but the basic heuristics we had were that um, uh, funds that are able to be disciplined on their size uh, are more likely to be able to access uh, cheaper companies. Um, so after that, we did, um, Dan and I both went to graduate school. Dan was at uh, Stanford and then I was at uh, um, University of Chicago. Um, and we worked together on um, a study of replicating uh, private equity in public markets. Uh, so the basic idea was that um, what if we looked in public markets for companies that fit the basic pri uh, private equity uh, characteristics of trading at less than seven times EBITDA, about 50% levered, um, and meet, meet the size characteristics. Uh, so we worked on that paper under the guidance of, uh, of our professors um, at Stanford. We had advice from uh, uh, Professor Charles Lee uh, on, on, on my end. Um, uh, Professor Robert Vishnu was incredibly helpful um, in, in providing advice and, 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 and feedback. Um, and we published the results of, the, of that study online on uh, SSRN, and the paper is called Leveraged Small Value Equities. And essentially what we found is that in public markets, if you're buying companies that look like uh, private equity LBOs, uh, over time you get uh, returns that are similar to, if, if not higher than, than private equity. So essentially that 20% that, that, that annualized return that is achievable in, uh, in, in, in public markets uh, uh, over a long period of time. Um, and then from there, that, that's when uh, Vodad was born. So. Uh, 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 after Dan graduated from Stanford, uh, launched uh, uh, Verdad in 2014. Um, and then um, I subsequently uh, joined Dan uh, full-time um, uh, in 2018 um, uh, as director of uh, quantitative uh, uh, research. Um, and um, today, uh, uh, Vedad has, has, has five partners um, and we manage um, strategy, uh, strategies across both equity um, and, and also uh, a, a credit strategy. Um, and our equity strategies follow uh, this basic formula of buying companies that are small, cheap, levered, and are in the process of paying down debt, um, and, but, but doing so in, in, in the public markets. Um, and that's for that in a, in a nutshell as of today. Yeah, I think it's a cool, I mean, it's a cool story of, you know, Dan having the initial sort of thesis and idea, you know, tapping you for your sort of quantitative skills when you're at Chicago. And then, you know, it, it, it's sort of a startup story. It's not a startup anymore, but I mean, at the time, you know, it was Dan probably bootstrapping it, you know, you coming on as the first employee and uh, you guys, I know, have done really well in terms of raising assets and um, sort of delivering on what you're saying your strategies are intended to do. Um, I wanted to um, just go back to the private equity thing for a second. So, I mean, I guess the question is, and I think Dan has talked about this and you've probably written about it too, and some, you know, but what are, when you try to uncover the actual returns in private equity over the long run, what does the return profile look like on, an, let's say an annualized basis? If the stock market returns on average, 10% over the long run, you know, what does the true private equity returns, I guess, look like? And maybe there's different, depending on maybe the uh, level of private equity firm, how large they are, maybe it varies, I don't know. 
Um, so I guess the first question is what, you know, what, what are the private equity returns look like over the long term? And then if there is a premium, do you, do you have any thesis as to what drives that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so basically uh, what you find, uh, if you look on um, any broad benchmark, like say uh, Cambridge Associates or others, uh, what you find is that over uh, a long period of time, um, the uh, return of private, net return of, of private equity of, after fees uh, is in the mid-teens. Uh, so, so, so around uh, 15% or so uh, um, net of fees. Um, so then the, and, and um, in comparison, uh, the S&P 500 over long periods of time um, uh, delivers around 10% uh, per year, right? So, so you're looking at about a, um, a 5% you know, uh, or so uh, excess return relative to the S&P 500. Um, so then the question is, okay, um, where does that uh, 5% uh, of excess return come from? Right, um, and that's where the work of Gene uh, uh, Farmer, Ken French, um, and, and 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 other uh, other academics really comes into play. Right, so we know that in public markets, um, uh, small companies uh, uh, generally earn a premium o over large companies. Right, and then when you look at uh, the size characteristics of, of private equity, on average, the uh, private equity uh, companies have about uh, 200 million of, of equity um, in, in, in the deal, whereas the S&P 500, uh, you know, the median market cap is around 40 billion, right? So um, right away on the basis of size, um, um, it's important to, to account for the fact that private equity uh, deals are orders of magnitude smaller than the S&P 500, right? Um, so to the extent, so you, you should be comparing, at, at the very least, comparing private equity uh, performance against a uh, small cap index, like let's say the, the Russell 2000, right? Um, and according to Pharma French research, um, you know, your small caps generally over long periods of time uh, should deliver um, a premium over large caps of, of, of around uh, a, a 2% per year or so. Um, and then uh, finally, um, historically, private equity has purchased companies at a discount to public markets. Right? Uh, so in the, 90, uh, in the 80s and the 1990s, um, private equity would buy companies at around uh, seven times EBITDA on, on average, whereas public markets were trading around 10 times uh, EBITDA. Um, so at least historically, um, before a ton of money flooded into private equity, private equity was essentially a, a, um, a value strategy. So you also need to uh, 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 account for uh, the value effect, right? So um, when you look at the uh, uh, Pharma French uh, uh, research, what you find is that the long run um, uh, return of, the, say, a small value index also gives you a mid-teens return um, in the US uh, over the long run, you know, uh, of, around, of around 15%. Um, so at the end of the day, the once you benchmark appropriately, um, that alpha of, the, 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 that seems initially to be five, five percentage points, really closes down and, and becomes close to zero uh, once you are comparing against 
um, an appropriate benchmark, which, which is essentially the uh, small value benchmark. Um, and some great work on has been done by this by um, Professor uh, Ludovic Afalipu um, at Oxford, and he's done a, a, an excellent uh, series of uh, papers benchmarking private equity performance. Um, and essentially, uh, what I just summarized is, is the, of the uh, results of his work where he essentially took private equity returns uh, from 1993 through to 2011 and compared them against um, the uh, public available uh, mutual funds. So uh, Vanguard S&P 500, uh, dimensional small cap uh, mutual fund, and also dimensional small value uh, mutual fund. Um, and he uses the metric of uh, PME, so, so public market equivalent. Um, and essentially what you find is that uh, uh, the PME um, is above one, which means our performance when you compare against the S&P 500. But then uh, the PME gets close to one, which means that there's no difference in our performance between private equity and your benchmark when you compare against, uh, say, a dimensional small small cap mutual fund. Um, and that PME is uh, at one or slight, even slightly below one when you compare against, say, dimensionals, uh, uh, small value mutual fund. So at the end of the day, private equity is really delivering uh, small small value exposure. I may already know your answer based on uh, what you just said, but one of the things people argue about private equity is that if I'm tying up my money, I should get some sort of illiquidity premium for that, that I should get a premium over public markets. Have you found that that premium doesn't really exist in the real world? Great, great question, Jack. Yeah, so I think at, at the end of the day, you know, there may also, at least according to the evidence that, that we've seen so far, um, um, that premium may exist, but it in private equity, but then it gets eaten up, eaten up by fees, uh, which is essentially uh, would explain the uh, the result that that we see of um, netto fee netto fees private equity essentially matches small value. Um, so to the extent that you know uh, you know before fees there was a illiquidity premium showing up, what ends up happening is that the two and twenty fees that are common in, in private equity essentially eat up that 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 illiquidity premium um, such that at the end of the day you're really just getting the uh, a small value okay we, we've talked about you know how value and size are really driving this small small or uh, private equity returns over time I want to ask you about what private equity actually says drives their returns and one of the things they will tell you is that we come in and we use our skill to turn these companies around you know we, we come in and we improve management we clean things up you know we cut costs and we really add a lot of value there and I'm wondering do you see anything in the data that tells you that's true Excellent question. Yeah, so uh, my colleague uh, Dan Rasmussen uh, did a, uh, a big study on, on this. Um, so uh, we essentially um, uh, put together a data set of 390 um, uh, LBO deals. Um, and this was based on uh, public data from, from the debt markets, right? So uh, these are deals where they had raised some uh, uh, public debt by issuing, uh, by issuing bonds. Um, and the key there is that in order to raise that debt, the private equity uh, companies had to provide financials for, uh, you know, the three years prior, um, and then also um, um, provide financials um, for at least uh, uh, three years after uh, while, while, the, while those bonds are outstanding. Um, so that data set had, you know, 390 companies, about 700 billion in, uh, in enterprise value. Um, and what my colleague uh, Dan did was, he, so he looked at um, 
what uh, you know the private equity firms tend to say about what they're doing with these companies, right? So they will say that okay, we go in there and we're doing um, you know at least one of three things, right? You know, we're um, going and and and, re and increasing the revenue of these companies, um, um, and we're um, trimming um, any um, fat in these companies and and, and making them more profitable, um, and then thirdly. Uh, they may say that you know private equity is essentially um, ensuring that the, by having full control of the company, they're ensuring that that, that the company is uh, is investing for growth. Uh, so uh, they're setting off the setting off this growth engine uh, for these companies. Uh, so then we we just investigated um, you know whether uh, any of these claims um, are um, are true based on the data. And um, essentially what we found is that on all three of those metrics, right, revenue growth, say um, changes in EBITDA margin um, and um, investment, the results really looked more like a coin flip, right? So if you're looking at, okay, um, in what proportion of those, uh, you know, 390 deals did uh, revenue growth increase or, or, or slow, it was essentially 50-50, right? So um, in about 46% of cases, you know, uh, revenue growth uh, increased in about 54%, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it, it slowed down. Similar thing with uh, your EBITDA margins, right? So in about 55% of cases, EBITDA margins uh, expanded. In about 45% of cases, uh, EBITDA margins are, are contracted. Uh, and, and similarly with, with investment, um, it is also close to 50-50, whereby um, in about 45% of cases, um, uh, investment or, uh, capex essentially uh, increased um, after a private equity bought a company, and in a, about 55% uh, of cases, uh, investment declined. Um, so really, what you see on those three metrics, it looks more like a coin flip. Uh, we don't really see anything systematic happening. Um, where we do see a systematic effect um, is in leverage, right? Uh, in 70% of those deals that we evaluated, um, leverage went up after private equity ownership, right? So, and so that was the biggest systematic effect. Um, so essentially what the data is showing us is that what private equity is really doing is, is putting, is, is getting access to, you know, small, small companies um, historically, that that have been cheap, and then we can talk about um, uh, some changes in that. And, but at least historically, uh, these companies were were small and they were cheap. Um, and what private equity is really doing is just putting debt on 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 top of that, um, such that the end product really is um, small value on steroids, right? Whereby uh, your you know uh, the steroid is leverage um, at the end of the day. Um, and that's all, all well and good. I mean, you know, as, as we um, uh, talked about, you know, our strategy is, is essentially um, uh, aims to replicate the formula of buying small, cheap, leveraged companies. But what private equity is, what's changed with private equity now is that valuation component as more money has, has, has flooded in. Um, so the upshot is that, you know, um, valuations have gone up a lot in private equity. Uh, so today on average private equity is buying companies at around 12 times EBITDA. So 
uh, today private equity is looking like more like uh, leverage small growth. Um, and there are a host of uh, uh, implications around that, which I'll be happy to, to, to discuss in, 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 in more detail as well. Yeah, before we move on to uh, public markets, I just wanted to ask you one more thing about the private equity industry in general. One of the things you hear, and I don't know a lot about private equity, one of the things you hear is that most of the returns are driven by the absolute best firms and that those firms sort of stay at the top consistently throughout time. And I'm wondering, is that true? Is that true that they're driving most of the, the returns in the private equity space? So, so, so and, and, and that's a great point, right? So um, there... There should be, there is some persistence uh, among among um, um, firms that have skill um, um, to the you know, to, to, to the extent you can you can find the the, the, the few few that do, um, but the key thing is, um, in order for uh, any firms to have persistently have um, uh, um, alpha they have to also be disciplined about their fund size, right? So to the extent that, you know, um, a, um, any investment firm really um, is disciplined about valuations um, and they're uh, disciplined about their fund size, um, that firm will be able to, you know, uh, consistently um, um, outperform over long periods of time. Um, but the challenge is that, um, Essentially, performance tends to attract a, a lot of capital, um, and you see that happening to uh, private equity writ large, right? So to private the private industry in general, because um, as you track, you know, fund flows uh, over time since the nineteen nineties, um, allocations to private equity have have, have ballooned um, and, and gone up a lot, and that's what's really been driving up uh, valuations, right? So. Um, the largest private equity firms um, have consistently been raising even larger and larger and larger funds. Um, so mechanically, what ends up happening is that um, you should expect uh, uh, returns in private equity, potentially expected returns in private equity uh, to potentially decline going forward, given that so much capital uh, has been allocated to the space, driving up uh, uh, valuations. So, at the end of the day, I think the key thing for, for, for allocators is um, um, the, really the only way to get exposure to firms that have the potential to ex, um, consistently outperform is really more and more to focus on, on, on process, i.e. Um, um, are they disciplined about valuations? Um, and, and two, are they disciplined about keeping their fund size um, uh, limited? Brian, can you step us through the model and some of the criteria that you and Dan uh, wrote about in that paper, Leverage Small Value Equities? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so broadly, uh, what we found, um, the, the, you know, the factors that were uh, most uh, significant and, uh, and, 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 and that had, um, had the most explanatory power um, fell into... Um, one, you know, valuation uh, first and foremost, right? Um, uh, so, and, and, and our, our main measure of valuation was um, 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 EBITDA to, to, uh, to enterprise value. Um, and, and then um, the second category um, was 
um, deleveraging, right? So the way we measured it was um, among the uh, levered companies that, that, that were in our study, um, we essentially had a binary variable of, you know, um, one for any companies that had historically paid down debt. Um, the idea being that if companies have shown some evidence of, um, of being able to pay down debt historically, the idea is, is that those companies will uh, be more likely to pay down debt in the future. Um, and even that simple approach um, um, uh, really, really explains a lot in terms of outperformance, uh, right? So if you're in a basket of levered companies, if you're investing in uh, the ones that have paid down debt historically, those tend to earn a premium over levered companies that have not historically paid down debt. Um, um, and then, so, so value, uh, deleveraging, uh, and then also size uh, was important. So smaller companies tending to outperform uh, uh, the larger companies. Um, and, you know, since then, since, since that initial paper, um, we've continued to, you know, uh, do work to more to simplify the model because um, we, uh, we also had, uh, had some, some additional uh, factors in there. Um, for example, like, like, like uh, liquidity, which was uh, uh, significant. But, but since then, we you know we've worked, done some work to simplify the model um, and also to um, do something a bit more, um, a bit more precise on the deleveraging component, right? So today, instead of, you know, uh, have just having that, that binary variable of has the company paid down debt historically, um, our deleveraging signal actually comes from a separate uh, um, uh, machine learning model, uh, which uses a range of inputs, including whether the company has paid down debt from the past, uh, including things like a company's free cash flow yield, um, a company's profitability, so all the things that, that, that you would expect um, any analyst to look at uh, when they're deciding uh, how creditworthy a company is, uh, this model looks at all, all those variables uh, and then essentially assigns a probability of uh, how likely each company is to pay down debt. Um, and um, we also rank companies by uh, a profitability um, and we also pay attention to a uh, company's momentum, right? So. Uh, today, when we're, when we're ranking companies, uh, the factors we are uh, most focused on are uh, uh, valuation, uh, deleveraging, uh, uh, profitability, uh, and, and, and paying attention to, uh, to companies' uh, uh, momentum. Uh, the idea being that you want to um, you want you want to wait before buying companies that have got uh, really negative momentum. Mm -hmm. What what's interesting about that is that so the strategy really has continued to evolve and adapt since the original mm -hmm. publishing of the paper. Because I, um, I think when we when we had talked a few years ago, I think there was even maybe a human element or overlay of looking at when you had your final list, you guys would kind of go through and try to vet these from a qualitative standpoint. But it almost sounds like the machine learning aspect has kind of picked up on some of what was happening there. And you guys have tried to make it more systematic. One of the interesting things too with that is, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Jim O'Shaughnessy from What Works on Wall Street. And you know those guys are constantly looking at their strategies, evolving their um, 
you know, the way that they're analyzing stocks, like with O'Shaughnessy initially, the, the key value metric was price to sales. Well, now, you know, in their strategies, they're using more of a value composite that takes multiple value metrics into consideration. So, you know, it's, it, it, and this idea of trying to, you know, utilize things like momentum and other things to avoid these really, these value traps, I think is, is, is really good and certainly probably helped um, you guys uh, performance wise. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and we, we we have so much respect for 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 Shonis. We, we we love every everything that that they write. And and to your point, you know, I think um, at the end of the day, any uh, research process, um, it's 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 important to uh, stay abreast of you know a the the, the latest developments that are coming out of uh, uh, academia, so that you know we uh, when a new paper comes out, we want to see whether we can uh, replicate those findings uh, um, in, in, internally um, and see whether um, um, any of those findings um, um, uh, warrant uh, including in our uh, uh, investment process. Um, and as you, as you pointed out, ultimately what we're driving at, right, is that the basic uh, formula uh, stays the same, right? So uh, the end product of what, what we want to buy is companies that are uh, small, cheap, uh, and in the process of paying down debt. Right. So those three criteria are, um, have always been the same and they always will be the same. Um, the, um, the evolution and improvement is in how you uh, sift through the opportunity set in order to arrive at essentially you know, the best companies um, that, that are small, cheap, and in the process of, of, of paying down debt. Um, and, uh, and 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 that's essentially what what our um, uh, research has mostly been focused on is um, trying to eliminate the ways uh, in which um, uh, perhaps we we may be wrong, right? Um, so we we've done a lot of a lot of work on on, on that on, on um, particularly using using a, a, a machine learning as well um, uh, to essentially to uh, automate. Uh, uh, human judgment as much as possible. Um, I don't think a human judgment will ever go away in a process, but the idea is that we wanted to make um, uh, whatever we were doing as humans that was um, um, that systematic, um, we just want to be able to encode that uh, in, 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 a, in a machine uh, to ensure that um, um, that process is as systematic as possible. You mentioned machine learning, and I wanted to ask about that because as a quant firm ourselves, we're sort of looking at that. And it seems like machine learning has the possibility of being very beneficial in terms of a process, but it also has the potential to be very bad if used improperly. And I'm wondering where you found the areas are that where machine learning can add the most value to your process. Excellent question, Jack. Um, yeah, so I'd say, you know, I think the framework for this really came from one of my um, business school professors. Uh, Matt Taddy, uh, who taught the uh, a big data course um, uh, at our school. Essentially, what um, what he said was that um, in in finance, what you want to do, um, to the extent that your investment process is uh, based on 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 targeting uh, factors, right? Um, so I'll make the distinction between uh, what um, you know. Some folks who who are uh, uh, maybe targeting, say, short term short term signals. Um, um, so I'm not commenting on that. What I'm commenting on is uh, to the extent that your uh, process is based on targeting um, uh, 
uh, say long-term factors, you want your uh, machine learning to sit on top of uh, your linear regressions, your linear factor models, right? Um, so to the extent that, that your investment process is tied to um, pursuing, say, small value firms, right? Uh, or perhaps even um, targeting uh, companies that are highly profitable, right? Um, the first, the, the, the starting point really should be your linear regression models because things like value, size, profitability, those are like, you know, the big, uh, big effects that a, a linear model is actually really good at, uh, at, at, at finding and, um, and, and, and measuring, um, um, uh, without, with, you know, less risk in terms of, uh, 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 uh overfitting, right? Um, so for your, uh, big factors that are linear, you know, uh, you want, you want to use your, uh, your, your, your linear regression models where ML, uh, can be helpful is in figuring out, uh, what is left, right? So once you've got your, uh, linear factor model, um, it'll, for, for every stock, it, it'll essentially give you an expected return, right? Uh, which is, um, um, the sum of, of, you know, your coefficient relative to, uh, the, uh, um, the, 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 the stocks loading on that factor, right? So, and once you have your expected return, you can just measure, um, uh, based on your historical data, what, according to this model, what was the expected return on average and what, uh, return was realized, um, on average and where, um, where did the linear model make the biggest mistakes, right? So essentially uh, what I'm referring to there is you essentially want to do your machine learning on the residuals of your, uh, linear factor model. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why, uh, it's important, uh, to do that. Um, because one, your, your ML models um, are going to be really good at finding uh, patterns that are uh, non-linear, right? Uh, so to the extent that, you know, the, um, there is something in the data that, that is non-linear, uh, odds are your, 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 your factor model won't necessarily pick that up uh, very well. Um, and, and that non-linear thing is going to be in your, uh, your error term, your residuals. Um, so that's, what you, that's why you want to feed that to your, your ML model. Uh, and then secondly, uh, your ML models are going to be good at finding uh, interactions, right? Um, so with your um, re regressions, unless you've got the prescience to know that, okay, this factor interacts with another one and you encode that ex explicitly at the beginning, um, odds are you won't pick up on all the interactions. Whereas your ML model uh, using your residuals will be able to, to pick up on, the, on those interactions. Um, and that's essentially how we've you know, thought about um, using ML in, um, for, for equities, uh, essentially as a supplement to our, uh, regression models. That makes sense. Um, I want to ask you, I, I know you guys are big believers in value like we are. Um, and I want to ask you what you think about what's gone on in the past decade. I mean, obviously things have improved a lot in the past six months or so, but before that we had a very long period where value struggled. And we had a lot of people arguing that there's certain reasons that's happened, you know, whether it's the fed fed is artificially suppressed interest rates. So value doesn't work anymore, or whether technology has broken value or passive investing in the constant flows that are driving up the biggest stocks have broken value. 
I'm just wondering how you look at that whole issue of is value dead or, you know, can we still rely on the past data we use to say that there is a value premium over time? Yeah. So it, 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 interestingly, uh, so short answer is um, um, I firmly strongly believe that uh, value is alive and well, and actually the expected return on value is higher today um, uh, than it was uh, historically, given where uh, how extreme valuation spreads have become between uh, between growth and value. Um, so that's the sh short answer there. And then backing into the uh, reasons of, of, for that belief, um, with the uh, the narrative or the claim um, uh, about you know uh, value being dead, I think the burden on, on proof is on the other side, right? Because uh, let's if we look at if, if you if we just take a Bayesian approach, right? Um, so if I'm a French, I've got data since you know 1926. Um, in, in, uh, uh, that's available on Ken French's website. Anyone can download it. What you find is that you know since 1926, um, you know value has handily outperformed outperformed growth. Right? So um, you've got, let's call it you've got about um, almost a hundred years of of data uh, supportive of uh, of value. Whereas I guess the um, uh, folks who may claim that that, that value is dead are, are probably looking at the past ten years. Uh, so just just from a pure Bayesian standpoint, right? You've got hundred years of evidence in favor of value, uh, and ten years of uh, ten years where you know uh, you know a growth has happened to outperform value. When you weigh the two, um, hundred years versus ten years, you know I still you know I, I would think that the, that the hundred years far outweighs um, um, what you what you observe over the past ten years. Now, obviously, you know, ten years, you know, can be, um, you know, it, you know, for all intents and purposes, is a um, is in for for any anyone's portfolio a long time, um, but but at the end of the day, that is probably the reason why um, uh, value some value essentially can't be obbed away, right? Because if value was easy to pursue if it was easy to collect value profits um then you'd expect the uh the, the value effect to, to get obbed away um but the fact that that you see that um you know um pursuing value requires a long time horizon requires a lot of patience um, um and the fact that you know uh, flows of over the past 10 years have generally been going more towards growth than they have been towards value uh Really, really sh should tell you that uh, expected returns for value going forward um, sh should be a lot higher. Another way of putting it uh, is that the cost of capital for value firms is a lot higher today than the cost of capital for uh, uh, growth firms, right? Uh, at the end of the day, and and since the cost of capital uh, is an investor's return, um, you know, value investors uh, uh, should expect uh, to, to, to to get a premium over over. Uh, growth and the market uh, over the long run. One of the interesting things people debate a lot, as you talked about how wide the spreads are right now, is it, can you add exposure to a factor like value when it's out of favor or when you have some indicator that tells you you should, and can you earn an extra return with that? And, and you guys said some really interesting work you did that looked at value in relation to high yield spreads. And, and I think it ended up being pretty much 100% correct on the backside of the coronavirus here. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that is and, and how that might provide a signal for when people should invest in value. 
that's an excellent point. Yeah, and um, I think you know a lot of credit uh, for that goes to, uh, to my colleague uh, uh, Dan Rasmussen, who's really uh, uh, spearheaded that insight uh, in terms of the relationship between you know um, high yield spreads and um, um, and expected returns for for value, uh, and that insight really builds on uh, some work that's been done um, um, uh, by by the likes of, of Gene Farmer, right? So. Um, Pharma, uh, Pharma and French have a paper that, that they wrote in uh, the 1980s um, uh, called uh, Dividend Yields and, and Expected Returns. Their basic idea was that um, expected returns are, are time varying, right? Um, and every once in a while, there's a shock to expected returns um, and market participants get, you know, um, get scared um, and prices drop. Um, a lot, uh, and and in those in, in those periods, uh, expected returns going forward are really high. Um, um, and since then, uh, we have a essentially a good measure, a really good measure of uh, uh, of fear um, in, in the market, which is essentially your your, your high yield spread, right? Um, so. When the high yield spread goes up, um, you know, past six percent, which we tend to um, uh, consider as as crisis levels, uh, um, that essentially means that um, the cost of capital for any lev uh, for, for for levered firms has 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 gone up. Uh, so, and that's the cost of debt capital, right? And if the cost of debt capital has gone up then it, it must also be the case that the cost of equity capital has, has gone up for, for, for those same firms. Um, and as a result, their prices are going to drop uh, dramatically today uh, when um, uh, high yield spreads go up past, past, six, uh, past 6%. Um, and, then what, and then the key thing is um, building on uh, an insight from pharma is that, you know, the recoveries, um, i.e. so going from that price drop, you know, going back to uh, break even where you started, those recoveries tend to happen uh, relatively quickly um, in, in the scale of market time, right? So um, um, what, what we found is that generally those recoveries tend to happen within about two years, right? Um, so ultimately, um, it's, it's, I think it's a, a good mindset for investors is that when the high yield spread goes past, you know, 6%, um, that is actually a really good time to um, really double down on, on value exposure um, because the price decline is a really strong screaming signal that expected returns are really, really high. But the window of opportunity, as, as we saw last year, you know, um, um, it's not always open for a long time, right? Um, it, 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 can, it can close relatively quickly um, because you know, markets, it's not often that, that markets essentially provide, provide a, 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 a free lunch. Um, as, so, so the key is, you know, whenever um, uh, high yield spreads go, go beyond six, it, that, that's a good time to, to add to uh, uh, value exposure. Um, and now a separate, separate question may, may come in and say, well, well, should you then just, you know, uh, 
try to time value. You know, I only have exposure to value when during during crises. To which, you know, I think the, the answer is um, probably not, um, because um, one, it it can be um, you want to have a, a some permanent allocation towards value to make sure that you don't um, miss out on, uh, on on the value effect. Um, um, because there still there still is a value premium outside of crises, um, um, and then two, you want to make sure that, that that you've got at least some some exposure towards value, such that during those crises, um, you're essentially the first to know that uh, now is the time to to, to, add, to add to add to value, as opposed to if you're sitting on the sidelines of value, um, and then you're reading about you know uh, some scary stuff that's happening in the papers, you might actually think to yourself, ah, oh, well, actually, I, I don't want to dip my toes toes right now, um, so. It's important to have you know a permanent allocation to value, um, and our thought is that you know um, when high yield spreads uh, blow out, that's actually a really good time to add uh, to your to your value exposure. Not always easy to do, <laughs> but but the people that do it, you know, they probably are the ones that are rewarded. So I mean, in the coronavirus, I think coming out of it is we we you know we've seen really good performance out of some of the most beaten up stocks. Um, uh, two more questions just before we wrap up. One is going to be sort of quant related, relating to a, pro a new a sort of project or initiative you guys are working on. And the other is more, I guess, organizational with what you guys do with some of your interns and opportunities for um, younger folks. But the first thing I want to ask you is, and I think you put a few pieces out. This was late last year around your use of artificial intelligence in terms of uh, predicting the changes in uh, bond ratings um, in the fixed income markets and sort of the excess return that you might be able to harness um, from using that sort of predictive um, capability. So just, I, and I know there, it was, I think it was a three piece, three different, you know, pieces of research. So there's a lot kind of going on here, but just sort of at a maybe 30,000 foot view, can you explain sort of what you were trying to uncover and what your research found? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, this was the main focus of our uh, research um, in 2020, uh, which is on um, um, our analysis in, in credit markets uh, in an effort to forecast um, um, uh, upgrades and downgrades. And this is across the rating spectrum. So from you know investment grade, uh, all the way to uh, to high yield, um, running the gamut from you know your um, you know your double A rated uh, uh, credits all the way down, down, down to a, a triple C's. Um, so my colleague uh, Greg Obenshine, who uh, is, 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 is a partner and a credit portfolio manager at Vodad, uh, we um, we worked together on on on, on this project, um, and and so Greg. Um, uh, built a massive data set of, uh, of, of credits uh, going back to 1997. Um, and essentially what we uh, were targeting was we measured uh, upgrades as um, a credit being moving up, up at least one notch, say from... Um, single B minus to single B, uh, um, or from um, triple triple B plus to double B uh, uh, 
so, so for, yeah, so moving moving a notch up from for, 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 from triple B plus, right? So um, that 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 essentially was, was our measure of uh, of, of an upgrade, um, and then a uh, the measure of a uh, downgrade uh, was essentially the the opposite. So um, if a credit uh, moved from um, double B to uh, double B minus or below, uh, that was considered as a, a as a downgrade. So we tagged um, the upgrades as a as a one um, and, and and everything else as, as a zero when we're building our upgrade model. And when we're building our downgrade model, um, anything that moves by more than one notch, uh, we tagged as a one. Everything else with a zero. So that was our outcome variable um, in each case. Um, and for each of the two models that we built, the upgrade and the downgrade model, um, our inputs uh, were first and foremost the market implied credit rating. Um, so, which is essentially um, the yield on on on, on the credit um, with with some adjustments, which basically tells us um, what rating is the market giving to each of these credits. Um, and then also we we fed in. Um, uh, um, all of the fundamental data uh, that we thought was important for, for, for each credit. And essentially what, what we're able to find is, is that um, you can predict um, um, upgrades uh, and downgrades in, 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 in credit markets. Um, and where it's particularly important to uh, use a essentially non-parametric, i.e. a machine learning approach, um, is with respect to uh, downgrades, right? So the pattern of you know uh, upgrade probabilities tends to be somewhat linear, um, um, whereas with with downgrades, um, it's really more of like a, a, a U-shaped uh, uh, relationship. Um, and, and and the way to think about it is that if you're looking, say, on, on your uh, x-axis, you've got the full range of credit ratings, right? So starting with the highest credits down to your uh, weakest credits, um, you know, your triple Cs. Uh, and then on the x-axis, you've got your probability of downgrade. Things that are, you know, say any corporate uh, credits that are triple uh, A, right? Um, really can't get upgraded, right? Uh, if the rating changes, it, it can only go down. <laughs> so the probability of downgrade is actually elevated for you, for, for your very best credits. Um, and then as you go down in, in credit rating, the probability of, of downgrades kind of declines, um, um, plateauing essentially at the inflection point between high yield and investment grade. And then as you get down to your, your lowest credits, like your triple Cs, your probability of downgrade goes up. Right? Um, so as you move from your double Bs down to your uh, triple Cs, uh, you see an increase in downgrade probability. So, so, that, so that's essentially a, a U-shaped relationship, which would be very difficult to measure with, with a linear model. Um, and, and we found that, that, that um, um, using um, um, a random forest as we did um, uh, provided a, a lot of additional value uh, in, in, in forecasting out of sample uh, uh, the, the downgrades across the rating spectrum. Yeah, you know, it's like these, obviously this, all these factors being applied to equities is, uh, you know, a huge industry. 
um, with all these different products, selecting securities, using investment factors. But I think the fixed income space is sort of maybe the next area that gets more factor factorized, if you will. Um, and your, I think some of your research is, is really, um, really interesting. And, and uh, so it'll be good to keep, keep an eye on that. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because in, in credit, there's a fascinating thing whereby um, for whatever reason, um, and then my colleague Greg is, uh, is, um, knows a lot more about this, but for whatever reason, um, there just isn't a lot of publicly available data in, 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 in credit, right? So once you have, uh, once you're able to, to build uh, that, uh, a data set of, of credit, that, that data in and of itself is essentially um, um, you know, worth its weight in gold, right? Um, um, whereas I think with equity, I think um, equity investors are essentially kind of uh, spoiled in, in the fact that uh, it's actually relatively easy to, uh, to collect uh, data on equities, uh, partly because, you know, I think the uh, CRISP, the, the Center of Research and Security Prices, has been actually been collecting data uh, since 1963, um, you know, and CRISP is, you know, is, 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 is a nonprofit. So I think it, um, a lot of the data has been available out there, but, but for every reason in credit that that hasn't been the case. So I think that that explains why uh, the adoption of um, say uh, factor models and, and, and um, you know, uh, ML has been slower in, in, in credit just because it's just so much harder to, 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 to get your hands on, on, on data. Just in closing, we just wanted to sort of highlight and give you a chance to talk about um, the, I think, unique internship program that you guys have um, and sort of how you have used in interns, um, you know, at Verdad. I think when we talked a few years ago, that was something you guys were doing. Obviously, with COVID, these kids aren't able to get together and live in some beach house in Maine, which is <laughs> last time we talked to you, which I sounded like a pretty cool experience to me, but, um, but yeah, so do you just want to, I don't know, we just figured we'd end on sort of a softer note and just hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, great point. Yeah. And, and I think, um, yeah, so we run a, a, an internship program uh, in the summer and also we do some uh, turn time internships. Um, and it's actually one of our, uh, uh, our, our favorite parts of, uh, of our jobs uh, is, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, working with, uh, with young people and, and, uh, and, re and really in, in, in investing in them. Um, so the way we structure our internship is um, it's set up uh, one, comp the main component is essentially uh, like an academic course. Uh, so um, we set up regular classes um and the and um uh, one of of the partners uh um for, will lead the discussion uh for, for for each class um and and our interns will have read uh some work on that that's been done by um uh, prominent uh, um uh, academics um and the idea is that uh we want to provide exposure uh to the full range of, of quantitative finance uh, all the way from, uh, say, the CAPM uh, to where we are today uh, with the uh, five-factor model uh, plus plus momentum, 
um, and also in terms of the full range of uh, quantitative methods uh, that are available to um, quant investors from you know your traditional uh, uh, linear uh, factor models uh, all the way to um, implementing uh, a machine learning models. So, um, um, and, and also obviously um, um, including a, a, a review of, um, let's say, DCFs uh, versus, say, a Monte Carlo approach to um, uh, estimating future cash flows. Um, so the idea is we want to provide a, a, a you know, wide breadth of exposure to quantitative methods um, and then um, during the classes, we have debates uh, between the students um, so, so, so that we, we can share and, um, and, and, and debate ideas. Um, and then our interns will also uh, work on evaluating uh, uh, some companies so that so they, they can get uh, some practice in, in looking at uh, 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 individual firms. Um, and um, uh, I think you know the thing that 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 we are very proud of is that we we, we uh, also work with our interns in terms of um, uh, supporting them in terms of uh, uh, as they network um, and, and um, for for their careers and, and getting placed in their next opportunities. Um, and then we're we're, we're we're very proud that you know, um, um, so far two of our uh, interns have gone on to be. Uh, uh, Rose scholars and um, in terms of also gone, gone on to, 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 to work at a, um, a, other investment firms. Uh, so we're, we're really proud of that fact. And um, um, for, for, for anybody who's, who's watching who might be interested in, um, um, in, 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 in working with us in an internship, uh, there's information available on our website uh, um, um, for, 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 for uh, people to look at and, and, uh, and, and apply if they wish. That's great, Brian. Thank you. If people want to learn more about um, the research that you're producing, more about Verdad as a firm, um, where can they go to find out more? Absolutely. So our, our, our website, uh, verdadcap.com, um, uh, is, is, is a great place to start. Um, and um, uh, on Twitter, um, my colleague Dan, um, um, his handle is at verdadcap. Um, and uh, on uh, Dan's um, uh, Twitter profile is a link to our, our weekly research. And, and I, I think that, that our weekly research is uh, you know, the, the best way to uh, uh, keep up with, with, with what, we're, uh, what we're doing on, on the research front. So we publish uh, research uh, uh, every Monday morning. Um, and uh, the that 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 research list, I mean, uh, we think is a is, is a good way to 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 keep up with uh, with what we're doing, um, and then I'm also on Twitter, um, on at verdadcap uh, underscore quant, um, so I think you know the, those are the main ways uh, to to keep to keep up with it. That's great, Brian. We'll put all those links and plus the links to your other research pieces and the leverage small cap uh, value paper in the uh, blog post and our show notes. And um, on behalf of Jack and I, we just want to thank you for joining us. And this was a really good uh, conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for, for having me. I mean, it, it was such an honor uh, to, to be here with you. I uh, um, really enjoyed the discussion. So uh, thank you so much once again. Thank you. Great. Thanks.
Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.